Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450 WKXL and htalkradio.com. Also, wherever you get your podcasts, I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Georgia's new voting law, which Republicans see as promoting voter integrity and Democrats see as voter suppression, has prompted corporate America to start taking sides in the state voting law debate. Big companies like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola in Atlanta and American Airlines based in Texas have spoken out against these laws. And now Major League Baseball has gotten into the act by moving its all-star game out of Atlanta to protest the Georgia voting law. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell says that from election law to environmentalism to radical agendas to the Second Amendment, parts of the private sector keep dabbling in and behaving like a woke parallel government. So, Alicia, what do you make of this uh, unfolding voting saga? And, uh, you know, the reactions from business and Major League Baseball. Well, I have several thoughts on it. One, you know, and it was Matt, my colleague Matt here, who pointed out to me several weeks ago, um, a portion of this proposed Georgia law would eliminate souls to the polls, which is a traditional Southern Black church event, predominantly, where on a Sunday or two Sundays, they, uh, you know, do early voting there. And that was a problematic provision, but it's been removed. And as a matter of fact, it's been expanded for weekend to, instead of one required weekend polling, it's two and two optional others. And I could go through the whole bill. I, I don't see where it's a suppressant bill to begin with at this point, since they made some changes. But moreover, I think big corporations need to stay out of it. I mean, if, if you step back and look, not about the Georgia bill or Texas or any of the others, the concept of major corporate influence now being not just lobbying dollars or whatnot, but being the public form of bullying a government into its will is an incredibly dangerous concept, regardless of the issue. Coca-Cola, Major League Baseball, that's what they're doing. They are saying, government of Georgia, you will legislate the way we want you to legislate or we will take dollars out of your community. And that should scare everyone, regardless of the bill we're talking about, regardless of the law, regardless of partisanship. You know, we don't want corporate America dictating directly to governments how and what they'll do. I remember my Democratic friends complaining for years that there's too much corporate money in politics, and now they're endorsing this behavior and promoting this behavior. And I think it's a slippery slope. As for the Major League Baseball thing, that's just ridiculous. I mean, they literally took, this is what they did. They took an all-star game out of a city that is 51% Black and moved it to a city that is 9% Black. They took it out of a city where 30% of the businesses that would benefit from the business brought to it are black family owned businesses and brought it to Colorado, which is whiter than New Hampshire. It, it looks great. People are championing it. But if you really dig down, what this did is take money out of the mouths of the families of the very people they're proclaiming to support and not want to be suppressed. Congressman Hodes, your thoughts? Well, you know, Ken, what I really appreciated was your slip of the tongue. I mean, we're dealing with Woca Cola here. 
Um, let's, you know, it's a whole new drink. Woke. If you drinks, take a take a sip of Woka Cola, people, and let's see what the corporations are up to. So, the great state of Georgia, where the Secretary of State Raffensperger is under attack from his own party because he stood up to the great orange Cheeto and a voter suppression bill where whatever tweaks have been done, they won't, they started out not allowing people to give food and water to people waiting in long lines of voters. And now let's talk about corporate America. Ah, corporate America, the paragon of virtue, not. Corporate America, the transparent arbiter of our politics, not. Corporate America, which was completely enabled by Citizens United to actually control everything. I mean, let's face it, folks, the unholy marriage of corporate donors and politicians is so deeply infused into our politics that the idea, as Alicia said, the horror of, well, she didn't use that word. I'm using that word, the horror of the corporations going actually public with their influence on our politics. Oh my goodness. All of a sudden it's out in the open. It's not even dark money that we're talking about. Now we're talking about public disclosure of corporate activity in our politics. And what the corporations have learned over time is that consumers actually seem to care about what their products or their brands do. It's a social awakening of the power of corporations from the public that is moving corporate dollars uh, to, to put their money where their consumers' mouths are in terms of their conduct and their interaction with politics. So is it unusual? Yes, we have not seen this kind of corporate consciousness come to light before. But frankly, if you compare the transparent conduct of corporations saying, we're not going to support voter suppression, we're not going to support Republicans who want to steal the election, we're not going to support politicians whose values are anathema to the American experience, well, at least public and politicians get a chance to see what corporations are really doing and where their values really are. And for Mitch McConnell to be crying in his crocodile bowl of tears about, about the corporations dabbling in politics. Well, I'd like to take a look uh, uh, Mitch there, I'd like to take a look at your list of corporate contributors and then turned out to wonder whether or not they're dabbling in politics or you're finally getting your comeuppance. So, so people, I think it's actually an interesting and important uh, and beneficial moment in American politics. Your thoughts, Matt? Well, Alicia makes some very good points, especially about, look, if Delta and Coca-Cola really wanted to do something here or take Major League Baseball, you know, it's a three-day extravaganza, the All-Star game. They could have made it into a, a voter sign-up initiative, right? There are more beneficial ways that they could do something impactful here. But 
I also want to pick up on where Paul was going at the end in terms of the relationship between the Republican Party and corporate America. Last week, I said that the number one thing I was looking for when it came to the infrastructure bill is positioning from major corporations, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the organizations that represent small businesses. Because what we've seen increasingly in the Trump era over the last five years or so is the trend of big companies turning away from the Republican Party and beginning to find some, some, some air gaps between their positioning and Republican positioning. They punished Republicans who voted to overturn the election results. And now they've since come back quietly. But in essence, what they're saying is, yeah, we like low taxes. We like less regulation in general, but we don't like where you stand on social policy and we don't like your voting policy. And by the way, Taxes and regulation aren't the only things that make us succeed. Remember that auto manufacturers sued the Trump administration because they wanted higher and consistent national mileage standards. Companies succeed in large part because of what the government does, because of government investments in research, in infrastructure, and in stable and transparent rules of the road. So what I read into this whole kerfuffle is this is a continuation of some of that some of that divorce that's been happening between corporate America and the Republican Party and a little bit of daylight uh, appearing there. And the final thing is Paul is right I don't particularly think that we want corporations as Mitt Romney kind of famously said we don't want to treat corporations as people. Corporations should not really be exercising speech rights. At the same time Companies are brands, and there's nothing particularly unusual to me about companies protecting their brands from a marketing standpoint. 60% of Americans say in surveys that they want their companies that they buy products from to have a position about social issues. And when Harvard Business Review did a study and they had a mythical company that adopted conservative values, the opinion of that company dropped by a third. The company was viewed as less profitable. Participants in the study were about 25% less likely to buy products from the company. So this kind of thing matters. It's not that surprising. And I think Paul is right that consumers are voters, voters are consumers, and consumers in a capitalist society have every right to vote with their dollars and their feet. If I can just add one thing, though, and, you know, because... Congressman Hodes brought up the whole food, no food and water in the line. A lot of the corporate decision here is based on mis misinformation. Most states do not allow that. You can't, I as a candidate cannot walk up or as an organization walk up to people standing in line to vote and hand them donuts um, or bottles of water that say, please vote Congressman Hodes today. That's called electioneering. It's already illegal in most states. And this is what George is doing. They're, they're following suit with others. So, and they're saying poll locations should be handing out water, have water stations so people can do that for those that don't bring their own. So it's a reaction to a problem, kind of like the bill is itself, right? It's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. You know, the, the, this whole bill is predicated upon widespread voter fraud that has not been proven or demonstrated in any way. It is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. That doesn't mean everything and it is bad. Even Michael Smirconish on CNN said that this Sunday on his show. And so is the reaction. The reaction is a response to something that isn't that bad, because it's really no different than almost every other state in the union. Yeah. I, uh, 
I look, ahead, I think Paul. you have a point well taken there that there has been a lot of misconception about the Georgia law. And when we hear Democrats kind of going off the deep end about it, some of it is a point well taken. Some of it is not. I personally am not all that exercised about the idea of people not being able to bring food and water. Election poll workers can actually do that at a, at a polling site. That's still allowed under the Georgia law. I'm not sure that access to bottled water that you didn't bring yourself is a major voting barrier. What people are right to be concerned about is the shorter window to request an absentee ballot, later mailing of absentee ballots, which as we saw in this last election, can lead to all kinds of problems with the counting and the mail, and the ability of the legislature to step in and basically say, you know what, we don't like what happened here. We're gonna just sort of cowboy this whole process and insert a result that we like. Those are legitimate concerns. And ultimately what this is about is a very, very sensitive topic. I believe Republicans who say that they don't want to create any racial disparities. The concern that arises, and the third rail issue here, is that there are disparities in the way these voting mechanisms affect different groups of voters. When you talk about voter ID laws, less absentee voting, less voting by mail, there's a disproportionate impact on African-American voters that's the crux of the issue. So are these problems addressable? Could you have sensible compromise voter laws that address concerns about fraud, which is a big lie and doesn't really exist in any systemized way that's been conclusively proven? Sure, you could have that. I agree with Alicia. A lot of what's in this Georgia law has been overhyped, but it doesn't mean that the core of the law doesn't have some real problems. It does. So I just want to throw in the fourth rail here, which Alicia raised. She raised it in a very serious way, and I want to comment in a very serious way. And that fourth rail is the donut lobby. The idea that Dunkin' Donuts and Honeydew Donuts will no longer be allowed to be distributed uh, in Georgia at the polling places is somehow just un-American to me. And as a spokesperson for the donut lobby, I want to speak out against that, that terrible, terrible provision in the law. So I, I, that's, this is a very serious issue for those of us who love donuts and eat donuts. Uh, and I speak for the donut lobby. So and you left out Krispy Kreme, too. I mean, you know, those are the best. And I apologize for that, because we could have a long discussion, which we won't get into here. It would just sidetrack us. But for all the donut lovers in America, I speak for them. All right. I wonder if Major League Baseball actually checked Colorado's voting laws before they moved the game. They, they may be, uh, you know, uh, more suppressing than, than Georgia's, so we'll they, have they, to see. They moved to Colorado for the marijuana, let's face it. That, yeah, that's they, probably they, right. They just wanted to give their players better access to better weed. So, I mean, that's a rational decision by, by a major organization. Paul, how about uh, New Hampshire voting laws? I know you talked about that recently on Capitol Close-Up. 
We did. You know, we we uh, we did a show with folks from the uh, New Hampshire voting rights campaign, taking a look at what's been going on in New Hampshire. And surprise, surprise, some of the interesting statistics we talked about uh, included a study from the Brennan Center for Justice, which uh, ranked the top four states in uh, our great American uh, republic for introducing new voter suppression laws. Um, There was Arizona, there was Mississippi, uh, and number four was New Hampshire. With um, number four, we ranked number four, I know we like to be number one in everything, but we were number four behind some great states for having introduced in 2021, so far, 10 different voter suppression bills, bills that would make it very much more difficult for students to vote. There was a bill that eliminated a student ID as a proof of identification. There were bills that that did all kinds of different things. Some of them have been tabled, some of them have been ruled or held inexpedient to legislate. But one of the, and of course the, the, uh, the the confluence of voter suppression uh, has to be seen uh, in the backdrop of the federal effort under HR1. And in fact, today, a bill introduced in the, in the name and memory of John Lewis to empower voting rights. Um, uh, so you've got this federal effort to make voting easier, to remove restrictions on a nationwide basis. And then you have all these states where they're controlled by Republican legislatures, including New Hampshire, which have this kind of knee-jerk reaction to either a problem that doesn't exist or just a knee-jerk reaction to stop people from voting, uh, because apparently Republicans believe that if voting is, is more ubiquitous, if more people vote, then more Democrats win, and we can't have that. And that seems to be the only rationale behind a lot of these restrictive uh, voting laws. Because if you take a look at New Hampshire, Republicans took control of everything on the state level. They took control of the House, they took control of the Senate, the Executive Council, the corner office, they got everything on the state level. So, So what's the problem, people? You won. You won. Why are you doing this? I mean, you won. Can't you just like take your victory lap and say, gosh, something must have worked in New Hampshire. We don't need to suppress any votes uh, because we won. So it's it's kind of, it's a bizarre rationale or lack thereof. And the only last thing I'll say is that <clears throat> within his wisdom, the vaunted venerable New Hampshire Secretary of State, Donald Gardner posted a rantish diatribe on the Secretary of State's website, conflating Nancy Pelosi's visit in 1983 to New Hampshire, in which she argued against the New Hampshire primary with HR1, and the idea that if we allowed Uh, easing voting restrictions. And if we allowed the federal government to pass something that empowered our voting, somehow it would violate the New Hampshire constitution and make it easier to take away the first in the nation primary. So if you want to look at bizarre ideation for a rationale to object to making voting easier, you don't have to look any further 
than the website of the New Hampshire Secretary of State. So my last word to Alicia and her Republican colleagues is, people, you won, you won. Stop and just celebrate your victory. If I may point out, Secretary of State Bill Gardner, one of the most respected secretaries of state in the entire country, is a Democrat. Absolutely. Missive he wrote in opposition to H.R. 1 was directly because of what we've discussed before, my opinion is, the centralization of the voting process and a complete upheaval of the state's rights and their ability to run and conduct their own elections. And so it is a Democrat who is the longest serving Secretary of State in the United States of America, who has been the preserver of the first in the nation primary. And I will heed his wisdom and guidance because he knows better than I. Well, he must have gotten he must have gotten the memo from the Republican National Committee because his diatribe reads like the talking points, the daily talking points from Mitch McConnell is all I can say. And remember that Democrat, Mr. Gardner, the vaunted, venerable, longest serving secretary of state. And that should tell you something about the length of his service and where he's going these days. But all I can tell you is that he was off the deep end Similarly, joining the Chris Kobach, uh, Kansas Secretary of State sham voting fraud commission under Donald Trump was his idea of how to be bipartisan, I guess. So let's give him credit for being bipartisan, but let's not give him credit for having any clear rationale about why voting in this country shouldn't be easier. Why shouldn't we have no excuse absentee voting? Why shouldn't we count every vote, even if it takes a little time after election days? Why not? What's the problem? Why? I mean, what's the problem? There is none. He's making a problem where none exists. And I credit him with being a staunch protector of the New Hampshire primary, which brings lots of buckos into our state. But a lot of people are very concerned about where that's going. The two voting and the primary simply are not connected. And the efforts by Republicans to suppress the vote in New Hampshire have to be stopped. The debate over infrastructure heated up this week as the White House released details of its proposal, which breaks down into four general categories. Infrastructure at home, meaning things like drinking water, infrastructure, uh, water infrastructure, electric infrastructure, broadband, housing and schools, transportation infrastructure, research and manufacturing investment, and the caretaking economy. And that means $400 billion for home and community-based care for the elderly. Republicans say they like some of the infrastructure, but they don't like other parts or the taxes to pay for it. And as we discussed on the show last week, they're all going to oppose the bill. Democrats say that they don't care if Republican politicians are against it, since actual voters are for it. And new polls out this week seem to back them up. So now that we have all the details, What does the panel make of the bill, both for New Hampshire and the country? Alicia? You know, it's a really big bill, $1.9 trillion, and only $600 billion of it is direct infrastructure, bridges, roads, things like that. And this, and I think I've said this before, regardless of the topic or what's in it, I don't like, and I know they do it, and I know they're always going to do it, and no one's going to care that I say this. 
I don't like when so many things that are actually unrelated are lumped together in a bill. For instance, the 400 million for, uh, you know, home health. I support that. I am all for it. As someone who was a caregiver of an elderly woman, she was lucky we could do it. But a lot of people can't. These are good measures. They should not be included in this bill and they should be taken up in consideration independently. And that's just how I will always feel about these bills that put in unrelated things, regardless of what they are. That being said, the Democrats should care because it's 50-50 and Kamala Harris only decides if 50 and 50 vote one way or another. And Joe Manchin is going to be the decision maker here. And right now he's indicating he will vote against this bill because of the size of the corporate tax rate. It goes from 21% to 28%. He says it should be no higher than 25%. And he will vote against it if this stays. So the Democrats in Washington can say they don't care what Republicans want. They're going to push it through anyway. Not unless they tweak it, they ain't. Paul Hodes. Listen, when I was in Congress, I, I agree with Alicia on this. Uh, when I was in Congress, uh, we would get massive bills and there would be a lot of stuff stuffed in there like a stuffed pepper. And it was like trying to pick apart the stuffing uh, because, you you know, I mean, OK, that looks like a bit of onion and that might be a, what used to be a red pepper and Golly, I can't tell what's in there, but I, I'm interested in the pepper. But the stuffing pieces, I, I just don't know. And these giant bills are kind of like that. You get a lot of stuff you like, and you get a lot of stuff you don't like. And what it really actually often posed a problem for me in voting, uh, because I knew that if I voted for a bill that had stuff I liked and it had a lot of stuff I didn't like, I was going to hit hit with all the stuff I didn't like um, in, the net, in, in the voting cycle. And I would then have, be left explaining. And if you're explaining, you're losing. And so it's a terrible place to be. Uh, but nevertheless, in the end, I realized how imperfect the sausage making process is. And that both for convenience or economy of, of means, you'd stuff these bills up and get them passed um, because uh, why not if you were in control? And so what I would have to do is balance, did I like more, more stuff than I hated? And if I liked more stuff than I hated, I voted for it. Um, I mean, that's in general, dependent on, on a particular bill, but I take Alicia's point about that. That said, elections have consequences the Democrats won. That said, if Joe Manchin is, is whining about the corporate tax rate, let me just point out that Jeff Bezos and Amazon paid zero in tax dollars to uh, America's kiddies while his wealth increased, I don't know how many, how many gazillions of dollars uh, and the wealth of Amazon during the pandemic increased by how many gazillions of dollars? Anything that can be done to rein in the abuse by corporations of our tax code and have them pay um, would be a good thing. And the final thing I want to point out is that the idea that this is simply costing money is not the correct way to approach a bill like this. These are investments in the future of the country that have been long discussed. They've been on the table for 50 years. It's time to move the country forward. These are investments and frankly, paying for it by overturning the Trump 2017 tax cuts in which 83 cents of every dollar went to the very top is a good way to pay for this investment in future opportunity for Americans. 
Matt Robeson? I'm going to pick a couple of nits with what Alicia said. I think that Democrats in Washington don't care what Republican politicians think that much. They do care a heck of a lot what voters think. And they are right that voters are by and large with them on the provisions in this bill. I'd also point out that it's not quite right to say that only a third of this is for direct infrastructure. You have to have a very narrow view of infrastructure to say that. I know some that is a that is a point that some uh, Roy Blunt, for example, the, the senator offered that that analysis this morning. Actually, uh, uh, the vast majority of this is for infrastructure. If you include things like electric grid, broadband, water as infrastructure, which you very much should economically. In totality, Moody's, the investment analysis firm, says that if you pass this bill, you're going to get 3 million more jobs over the life of the bill. Georgetown University economists say you would actually get 15 million more jobs. So you're creating significantly more jobs out of doing this. And the point is, this is really about not today's economy. We know that today's economy is recovering from the pandemic-induced recession. This is about the economy, our jobs, and most importantly, our competitiveness over the next 10 years. I know it's gotten, become a little trite to say, win the future. I don't like that slogan much, but that is basically boiling down to what it is. If you look at the New Hampshire-specific situation, U.S. News & World Report ranks New Hampshire in the bottom third of the country when it comes to infrastructure, 44th in energy, 41st in roads. If you talk to actual voters, actual people in New Hampshire, small business owners in New Hampshire, this is a problem. If you are a small business and you want to offer your services out of Coas County in New Hampshire, the lack of broadband infrastructure is a problem. If you are manufacturing something in New Hampshire, the lack of road and rail infrastructure is a problem. You are less competitive versus manufacturers in China when it comes to shipping your goods domestically around the US. So these are significant competitiveness concerns. It seems like the American people by and large get it and they by and large back it. All of that said, nits picked. I agree with both Paul and Alicia. It is hard and I'm trying to avoid my own reflexive, you know, I'm generally in favor of what's on the Democrat side. You know, I, I, there are there are nits you could pick out of this. I would just encourage people to think about it not solely as about infrastructure, the way you would think about infrastructure in the 1950s, but to think about this bill is how competitive we will be in eight to 10 years. If you think about it that way and you ask yourself, are these the right series of investments to make sure that in eight to 10 years, America is kicking butt against China then yes, I think you could have a, a, a pretty clear-eyed view of what this bill does. And uh, along those lines, uh, Matt, this week's edition of Great Ideas is about infrastructure and the idea of thinking of it in terms of future economic productivity versus cost. That's right. Uh, on the Great Ideas show, which is broadcast on Thursdays on WKXL, it's on the Great Ideas podcast feed, which is uh, really excellent, if I must say so myself. We have Tori Gorman of the Concord Coalition. She's actually a Republican. 
um, and uh, an economist and a, a budget and economics expert from the Republican side. And we actually kind of look at the, the question that Alicia just brought up, which is what's the right way to think about these kinds of investments? She encourages people to think about it in terms of future productivity. That doesn't mean that she says that all of the investments in this bill are a good idea, or to Paul's point, that they should all be smushed together in one bill. So it's a way of thinking about things like this, investments like this, and to measure them a little bit more objectively in terms of their value for the future. So I encourage everyone to check it out. All right. Big news out of Washington this morning. Kind of wonky, but uh, really significant. The official in charge of the rules of the U.S. Senate, known as the parliamentarian, has ruled that the Senate can use the reconciliation process more than once. Now, that's a special procedure that allows bills to avoid the filibuster and pass with a simple majority as long as they're related to the budget. That means the Democrats could try to pass uh, a lot more of their agenda this way. And uh, of course, it reduces pressure on getting rid of the filibuster. What is the significance, Paul Hodes, of this ruling? Well, the significance is that Democrats are in charge and Democrats get to use reconciliation to push their agenda. Um, and, and they're not limited to only one bill, you know, one bill a session. They're going to get to use the, the parliamentarian has ruled that reconciliation, which requires that a bill or provision be budget related, um, uh, can be used. Uh, clearly, with the infrastructure uh, bill, there are many provisions which are budget related and Democrats uh, you know, are going to be able to take advantage of the election, have, election has consequences. Uh, routine and uh, where necessary to avoid the filibuster, they can use reconciliation. It, one of the political advantages is that it avoids Democrats having to go uh, to uh, internecine warfare with people like uh, Senators Cinema and Manchin over reform of the filibuster, um, which is still a good idea. And they ought to do it anyway. But uh, this makes it a little easier for Democrats to move their agenda. Alicia Preston. If Republicans were in charge right now, I would be all for this decision. I'd be all in. Say this is a great decision because I am a Republican and I am biased and it would benefit my side of the aisle um, because I'm not. I don't like it. That being said, uh, as we're talking today, I'm realizing on many levels, I just don't like how our government works. <laughs> I mean, whether it's these omnibus bills or this, you know, <laughs> dancing that they're doing. Look, it should be simple. It should be everything's a majority vote unless some guy wants to get up there and read all six banned Dr. Seuss books for 24 hours and cause a filibuster. None of these, you know, parliamentary moves and all these historical things that are being done. I just don't like it. I just think Washington needs to be cleaner, simpler and do what it was actually intended to do in the process in which it was intended. Your thoughts, Matt? Amen to Alicia's point there. As a matter of fact, we were just talking about the Great Ideas Show. The same expert that we have talking about the infrastructure bill, we actually did an earlier show with her. She is a total expert in the budget process, and she explained how reconciliation works. And the number one thing she said is that it's 
awful. We should be getting rid of it because it is, you shouldn't need a PhD to understand how your democracy works. And you really do. To understand the reconciliation rules. Look, I worked on Capitol Hill for 10 years. Paul was a member of Congress. And we can kind of explain how reconciliation works. But I mean, it's it, the idea that the American people need this kind of advanced expertise on the simple question of, you know, did my elective rep representatives, did they do something? Were they in favor of something or not? Are they, are they reflecting what I, being in charge in a democracy, want? Are, are they reflecting that adequately so that in the next election I can evaluate their performance? It, the, the reconciliation, the filibuster, all of these things scramble the picture beyond recognition. So Alicia, totally on board. That said, to your question, Ken, the happiest person in Washington, D.C., Paul Hodes, who is it right now? Who's the happiest person in Washington, D.C. after this? I don't know. Pop quiz. Schumer. You said it. You said it. Well, it's no, you're right. Schumer's Joe, probably number two. Joe Manchin. It's got to be Manchin. Joe Manchin. Because right. look, first of all, the filibuster gives him incredible political cover, right? He doesn't have to deal with a lot of close votes on issues that he doesn't want to touch. A few Republicans can be against it and oh, he's not really put to the question on it. So that's awesome for him and for Kirsten Cinema. It also gives Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin, the ability to do some old fashioned, what's called log rolling, which is trading of what happens over here, what doesn't happen over here. What Joe Manchin needs to do for his politics, what Kirsten Sinema needs to do for her politics is to loudly oppose things. Remember, Joe Manchin is the guy who ran for the Senate by in an ad firing a rifle at the cap and trade climate bill that the Democrats were passing at the time, doing the rare political twofer of, I love guns and I hate the climate stuff. So for his politics, he needs to loudly be against a lot of the Democrat stuff. So now with the Democrats able to pass more of their agenda, or at least realistically put it on the floor, he gets to kill some stuff. That puts Chuck Schumer in the position of being able to say to him behind the scenes, Joe, we need this one. So I will give you one over here if you're with us over there. That's how these things work behind the scenes. More options means more power, more ability to get more things done. The final thing I'll say is ultimately at the end of the day, if you agree with Alicia, you agree with me about how democracy should function. Yeah, it's 50 plus one. That is the current majority. And so I think the Democrats should try to pass the agenda that they passed, and then the voters should weigh in and say whether they like what was done or they want a new direction. That seems fair to me. Florida Congressman and outspoken Trump supporter Matt Gates has been caught up in a strange scandal this week. He is under investigation for a relationship with a 17-year-old girl and violating sex trafficking laws. He says... He's the victim here of a conspiracy involving the FBI and powerful forces, including the establishment, the Biden Justice Department, the Cheney political dynasty, even the Justice Department under President Trump. So what is going on here? And there, is there anything politically noteworthy about this? Or is it all just another bizarre Washington episode, Alicia? Well, it's certainly bizarre. Like this one's weird. We, uh, we've heard of a lot of sex scandals over the decades uh, out of our White House and Congress, but this one's just a little bit strange. So before I give an opinion, let me just give a piece of advice. This is a PSA. <laughs> if you're going to hire a hooker, do not use a cash <laughs> to pay for her. 
That is just my piece of advice. Cold hard cash is not as traceable as an app on your phone where you can see the bank account and name it came from. That's just a terrible idea. So that's the PSA. This is the kind of insider top advice that people pay top dollar for. I mean, people really do hire Alicia Preston to give them campaign <laughs> guidance. And, you know, you could, you could pay for it or you could just listen to this show and uh, get it for free. This Go on, really, please. Yeah, yeah, Don't let me is, interrupt you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes. That, that, yeah. is, that is good advice. What are the other, <laughs> Alicia, what are the other steps to hiring a hooker? Please tell me, because I can't, I've never been able to figure it out. Not that I'd want to, but it would be good to know. I mean, are there, as a political strategist, what else can you do to cover your tracks? Well, in this case, I would say don't use a website that is looking for sugardaddies.com or something like that, which I recently learned about, because also traceable on your IQ, on your computer, your phone and your IP address. So I'm just saying if you're a congressman and you feel the need to do this, make believe it's 1971 and however they got hookers and paid for them back then do that. That's my advice. Wow, I, I'm I'm impressed, and now I know why you're so, you're a top strategist, um, because that kind of advice is is really critical to understanding how to operate as a member of Congress. Uh, it you know it, frankly it ought to be required training for every member of Congress uh, about how to properly abuse the powers of their office. Look, Matt Gates is a pig. He is the worst pig in the pen at the moment. Um, not that there are probably others who followed Alicia's advice, but he is he is the oinker in chief. Um, he got, you know, you be careful of the friends you keep. This tax collector down in his district down there apparently saw his tax collection office as simply a means to um, uh, make a new kind of living to make sure he was running, he was running sex trafficking, he was stealing from the voters, he was doing every possible crazy thing. I loved the picture uh, that I saw on TV of the tax collector, Matt Gates and Roger Stone with their shirts unbuttoned, their beautiful Florida tans, holding up drinks or whatever, and just yucking it up. Now that's exhibit one in the trial of Matt Gates because this guy has got to be toast. The only crazy thing about the whole thing is that apparently he's insulated from Republican uh, condemnation. Nobody's saying anything about it. Maybe they've all followed Alicia's advice. I don't know, but the guy's a pig. He's got to go. He's a pig. He's got to go. Even Trump has abandoned him. And when Trump abandons you, you know it's time to go. Matt? I, too, would like to dunk on Matt Gates. <laughs> Everything that has happened to him truly could not have happened to a nicer guy. Um, this is, I mean, the reason Republicans aren't rushing to his defense is not only that he's done something, you know, you never want to defend the indefensible. That's the kind of political advice you can get from me. <laughs> oh, that's really good. That's, that's expensive yeah. advice. But he also has not won any friends, including 
from the Trump people who, you know, he loudly defends and then are nowhere to be found when he finds himself in trouble. And it is interesting that he's deployed the classic. I learned about this on South Park. Have you guys ever heard of DARVO? It stands for <laughs> deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender. So he's denying, he's attacking, and he's saying, I'm the victim here. This is the craziest story. All right, look, on one final serious note, I will say, I personally am a due process absolutist. I am. I believe in due process. I do not believe in trying people in the media. I do not believe in trying people on social media. I do not believe in trying people outside of a court of law. So I am not going to rush to judgment about him. Uh, That is for the legal process. That's a matter for the courts. (laughs) And uh, I believe in due process. However, I am open to dunking on him and uh, I, I will thoroughly enjoy continuing to do so. Well, of course, he's innocent until proven guilty. And that's going to have to do it. We'll have to leave it there for this edition of Balance of Power. For Alicia Preston, Paul Hose, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. Join us next time for Balance of Power.